Hey folks, you know sometimes when you get into a conversation with somebody and time just seems to stand still, you lose all track of, of where you are and before you know it, hours have passed and at the end of it you think, do you know I could have spoken to that person all day and this was one such occasion for me. The conversation with our next guest was so interesting and informative and provocative and it just it really inspired me and so we spoke for nearly two hours and I've looked at it and listened to it to try and find a natural spot to to break it down into two separate casts and you know I just can't because the conversation has flowed so naturally and it's been so interesting I didn't feel that breaking it down anywhere and forcing a break in it would do it justice and hey we're all grown-ups here, right? So we trust you that you'll decide for yourself how to listen to it in its own segments. And I, all I can say to you is you won't want to miss a thing. So without further ado, here is Sheila Walsh. My name is Sheila Walsh and I'm based in Ireland, but I work internationally. I specialise in working with leaders and I have a very particular focus on inclusive organisations and the role leaders have in creating organisations that are effective, produce results and are inclusive along the way. My background is coaching psychology and organisational development and I'm doing research into inclusive leadership. Welcome to Leaders and Managers Hub, the podcast. Sheila, I'm really, really delighted that you've been able to join us and I'm really looking forward to this. Can we start if by you telling us a little bit about how you got to where you are? Where you are? I'm loath to use the word journey because it's overused sometimes, mm-hmm. but but what your, what your evolution has been to get to, to where you are today? Yeah, I, I love that question and hate it at the same time because... Um, some people think that when you're coaching, you have like a straight line, like you have an outcome because that's kind of one of the ways that coaching is interpreted. But I got into it completely by accident. Um, I was working, I was actually doing an internship for this really cool guy. Um, I was doing some really interesting work with him around customer service, as in I wasn't hired to do that, by the way. So I'm dyslexic. So I was hired to count stock and I was so bad at counting stock um, Owen gave me a different job within the company because he was like, she can't get, she's terrible. Like every time I counted it, it was different. So I was working with him, I think for about a year and, and I'd done other work. I, I had gone to cookery school and um, I'd done a lot of reception and service work, but I kind of got into this to work with him because he was in business. And I was really interested in the business side rather than what the business was. And when I was working with him, I realized I was really good at figuring out um, people's needs and customer service needs. So I ended up indirectly um, kind of dealing with a lot of the customer stuff and then taking on board how to make the processes better for people by listening to them, by collecting feedback, um, by thinking of kind of innovative ways to kind of reduce the amount of back and forth that was happening. 
So while I was doing that, I was also doing lots of alternative trainings in all sorts of things from psychology to holistic things, because I was just really interested in general well-being. And I decided one day, right, I should set up a practice because um, people seem to keep calling me to do this work because you have to do a lot of pro bono work in that training. Um, and I prefer it than looking at figures on a screen. So that was kind of where it started. And so Owen actually helped me do my first business plan and uh, was a bit confused by the product. He's like, so you're just selling a service. I was like, yeah, just a service. Um, so I set that up about 11 years ago. And the only real reason I set it up was there was no jobs in what I wanted. So in Ireland at the time, there was no internal coaching jobs. Um, all people work was dominated by HR. And that wasn't really my interest. My interest was performance, well-being, um, progress, you know, kind of a holistic sense that life could be good, that you could enjoy work and you could enjoy your life outside of work. And at that time in Ireland, that wasn't really topical. Um, and the only people who really did that, any kind of human work were HR, and they really had a role towards the organization. So that's why I set it up. The, the second part to that was I set it up because I wanted to be in something that I couldn't stop learning because learning was really, really important to me. But I realized that a lot of people get into jobs and once they've learned, they kind of stop there or they did at the time. It's, it's not as common now, but they kind of just stay with what they originally learned and they don't evolve as a person, but they also weren't being given the opportunities to think differently or to explore different ways of seeing things. So I wanted a job that would let me do work I liked and continue learning. So I set up private practice. And so 11 years in, the private practice has gone in lots of different directions. Um, and I suppose the thing that got me to where I sit today, where I kind of, I look at leaders is, is, is a two prong approach. And it's that I think, and the way that I work is that an individual has a certain amount of power um, in their lives and over their choices, but actually the systems that they exist within also has a, a has a partial power, whether that's a family system, whether that's an organizational system, whether it's a political system. So I started to see when I worked with people that it wasn't enough to just individually work with people. You had to understand the systems they existed within and the rules in those systems and how that was going to negatively or positively impact their progress. So that's where when I worked with leaders, I started to see that you couldn't just talk to leaders about their behavior if they didn't understand what was happening in the organization and how they were responding or reacting to it or passing the problem on to their staff or trying to protect their staff from the problem. So I got here by noticing that there was a gap between people who went in and worked with individuals and then people like in OD or development would go in and work with the organizational systems through people. And I realized that actually, if we don't hold position for both and the same in therapy, right? Like if we don't say yes, as an individual, but they come from a family system, then we only ever see part of the situation. And so that's been kind of where my niche has emerged is that I hold both as valuable pieces of information in the process. So when I work with leaders around performance, I'm not just thinking, how do you perform? I'm thinking, how do you perform in a way that supports others around you performing well and often doesn't perpetrate the harm that might be existing or the, the defensive behaviors that exist in organizations and help people to understand what's happening. So I got here through practice. So through working with individuals. And then I realized I was working a lot more with leaders and then people who ran businesses were coming to me more and asking me for help. And it, it kind of emerged to where I sit in between that space of working with individual leaders and helping them understand the systems that they're working within and how to work best in those realities. Mm. Um, and also how to maybe make some shifts sometimes if possible, so that that, so that that system can work more effectively for everybody, not just for a select few. 
Um, so it was very much an evolution in my own, um, from my own interest in learning and desire to work with people to seeing that I kept working in a particular way and people kept coming back for that type of work or referring friends for that type of work. It's interesting what you say about that dynamic of the individual, because in, in TA, we, we, we focus a lot on the contract and the contract, particularly when you're, if you're doing individual coaching, but within an organization, you're very much aware that it's a three cornered contract, that mm. you are contracted to the individual coachee, but you're also contracted to the organization, often because they're the ones paying the bill, but also because they've engaged you to coach this person in the context of the organization as well. But even in, in private practice, if you're dealing with individual private individuals, it's it's all also it could be a multi-cornered contract because you know we all have families and friends and and circles of influence and networks and stuff and and you just need to be aware of those when you're working with people as well because they have certain pulls that may present within the coach coaching session or the scenario mm. so it's interesting that you 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 identified that very early on um and i guess it's probably fair to say that in Ireland at that time, like you alluded to, this wouldn't have been the norm. How did you find that it was received? Did you Were you feeling much resistance to it? Or like were organizations kind of very much, well, you'll come in and work with our people, but you'll work with them on our terms? What What was the scene like? What was the environment like? Yeah, so, so there was a couple of things that were there. So 11 years ago in Ireland versus today are very different. Um, 11 years ago, organisations were paying you, or, or at least the organisations I was accessing, to give an hour's talk, um, as opposed to do in-depth work. Or they would only hire you when there was a problem. So you ended up doing a lot of like firefighting and supporting people to like get to a base ground again. And then to do the actual performance and well-being and progress and, and innovative pieces of work. Because even 11 years ago, now, unless there were international organizations, so I have to say this, like, there is a caveat around what I'm saying. There was always exceptions to the rule. But if I talk about the norm contracts that, that were coming my way, um, usually what would happen is an individual who'd worked with me would recommend another individual. And so what would happen is a leader would recommend another leader who'd recommend another leader. So they often came privately and then sometimes they told their organization, so their organization paid. But often people found me um, kind of under, <laughs> under the circuit, for want of a better word. And there was sometimes more of a trust because they found me than if I was hired by the organization. And I can even see that now, 11 years on, sometimes people say, yeah, confidential, but how confidential, you know? Yeah. Um, and, I, and I think your point about kind of the number of people in the contract is really important. So even when I work with an individual, it doesn't matter who's paying me if I don't take into context their systemic experience, whether that's how they were raised or the environment they exist in now or their family rules, either family of origin or current family. Um, if I don't take that into account, then any of the work I do on their identity, um, their self-belief, their confidence, their, their personal progress won't be sustainable because systems tend to squash progress when they aren't complementary. So for me, it doesn't actually matter who's in the contract. Um, if we don't look at the systems and the pressures and the expectations around the individual, we're not actually bringing the work outside of the coaching room. Mm -hmm. So I think that one of the things that was unusual for people in the beginning was that I would be looking at both. So they were like, no, you're here for me. And I'm like, yes. But if we don't look at the rules in your organization, 
I don't know how you're going to get that promotion because that promotion isn't actually really just about how good you are. That promotion is about how you're going to complement that next level and how the organization think the person who's going to complement that should look and behave. Mm. It goes beyond your preferences. So, so yeah, so I, I think that back then that was kind of a much newer concept, whereas now leadership development is like look we're flinging the information everywhere like as if the information is going to be enough to help people so people know oh I should influence people know I should stakeholder like do stakeholder management people know I should speak up in meetings but actually a lot so while they know what they should be doing um I call it the like toxic shouldism in leadership there's all these rules because we have so much access to information books podcasts that what they're missing is sometimes how do I do it effectively that honors me and the organization so not how do I become something I'm not or how do I give the organization what they want or how do I resist what the organization wants and just you know put my feet in and say I'll only do it my way and and I think that that's where we are now where people have all the information so it makes sense now whereas it didn't early on but they don't necessarily know how to do that effectively because they haven't necessarily looked at the intrinsic pieces at play within themselves or within the organization. So I think that's the big difference between then and now is actually they didn't have the information as readily or easily. Like look at all of the, the information that's out there for leaders and managers now mm. compared to 11 years ago, um, which is fantastic because it used to be gatekeeped, but like it was being it was being held off by academics, by by experts. Um, whereas now it's it's freely for everyone to use but the downside of that is we don't always know how to use it effectively and it can actually make people feel worse like a lot of leaders are like yeah I know I should speak up but I don't know what to say well then the issue isn't that they're speaking up the issue is that they're not trusting themselves yeah but they don't always know that like I get so many requests for people to say I need to be more confident I want to be more confident but confidence has about 10 roots that I've traced it back to in leaders. So some, one person says confidence and they all think they're talking about the same thing, but they're actually not talking about the same thing. So until I've done like an assessment to get to the root of it, I don't know which one of those 10 things is the actual need. Mm. And then I, I, I won't know which one to apply. So how do they know when they've just read, this is how you increase your confidence. And they're actually sitting there going, okay, so if I do this and this, but that's not the issue with their confidence really. Mm. So I think that that's the difference now is they have that information, but they don't necessarily have the unbiased view that like going to a coach or going to a therapist brings them. And so that's where they're getting stuck now is all this knowledge, but the inability to know how to use it to move forward. Um, whereas previously it was knowledge missing. There was an awful lot of knowledge missing and a lot of science missing as well. It's, it's quite, it's quite key because it, it can be just so overwhelming. There's, there's all of these labels about leadership out there. I should be this and I should be that. And, and often people don't get the opportunity to examine it in terms of their own values and beliefs and their own identity. And, you know, you can act out any particular role in an organization, but if you're not true to yourself, it's going to be very difficult to do it authentically and, and to make it stick and to make it part of your leadership style. So I do, I agree with you. I think we're at a stage where we're just starting to cross the Rubicon in terms of, okay, so these, this is what we, we should be doing. What works for me as a as an as an individual in in line with my purpose and my identity and my values and beliefs and I find in in coaching now at the moment there's much more around values and beliefs and identity than there ever was and exist you know the existential questions mm -hmm. as well and I I think sometimes that can depend on the pressures in the employment market as well 
Um, mm. I think at the moment, actually, weirdly, there's there's uh, people see opportunities to ask for what they need and and to to, to seek out careers that speak to them mm. on a on a wholly different level. It's not just about finishing school, getting a job for life, collecting your carriage clock when you retire and off you toddle. It's it's much more about people want meaningful and purposeful work that mm. fits in with who they are. Mm. And one of the challenges I had, so I'm all about authenticity, but I, I think it's been misused, right? So what I mean by this is authenticity, people think is often think is, oh, I'll just do what I think is right. But actually to be authentic, we have to know what part of us that we've labeled as personality is a defense. What part of us is underdeveloped because of the, society we grew up in or the family we grew up in um, and that's not to cause blame it's to understand that there are parts of our identity that we think belong to us that were inherited that were given that are unconscious to us and and one of the things I found so for instance if I hear the phrase that's just who I am one more time <laughs> when when I know just by the, by the critical breakdown it's a defense like it literally is defense it's not mm. a personality trait but I actually saw this fantastic saying yesterday, which is if you remove context from any kind of trauma, then then it's easy from an individual. So if you remove context, it's easy to think that their behavior is a personality trait. So whenever we remove context, we it's easy to think it belongs to somebody what they're doing. But when you put context back in. So when I look at a leader and I say, um, you're a middle-aged man who was brought up to believe, and, and I'm going with a stereotypical thing here now, like there's all sorts of, thankfully, diverse leaders out there, but middle-aged man who was brought up to believe that you educate yourself to a certain level, um, you work hard and you'll, you'll gain something. And then they go home and they say, yeah, but my relationship at home isn't working. And, I, and they're like, because I just, look, that's who I am. I work hard and they can't appreciate it. But that's actually not a personality trait that usually is a defense and it does come back to work and worth it comes back to this notion that as a as a as a man worth is directly related to work and productivity and i'm not saying that that's true i'm saying that that's a common belief i see in my work all the time where where men middle-aged men that i'm working with often find it really hard to separate their identity from their work um, and often are struggling with the impact that has at home and the kind of mixed messages that they're getting. So uh, I I worked with someone about two years ago and he said, look, I bring home all the money they need. Like, what more do they want from me? And I was like, that's what you deliver. That's not that's not what they want. They actually want you. And and that was a very new concept to this person, because for 50 odd years, he said this works like for 50 odd years, as long as his, his kids are in school and, and needed money for education. And his, his wife had the kind of lifestyle that she wanted. He honestly believed that that, that, was, that was the most he could offer. And when we worked together, we, we looked at all of these other parts of himself that he just didn't share with his partner mm. or in his work. And I suppose I see that more and more where people just think that the way they cope is who they are, but it's just coping. It's not who they are. Um, it might be part of their identity, um, but it's not who they are. So I, I suppose that's, you know, I know when we had a pre-talk, Ray, I, I had pointed out about intersectionality and about inclusion and that one of the challenges I have about it is that we don't always talk to what we consider the dominant group, which is usually white men. Sometimes the very people who benefit from it. So so those men for 50 years, for instance, benefited from being the provider at home. And that made sense to their identity. 
And then at some point something changed and they didn't understand why that wasn't enough anymore. And that's because there was an underdeveloped and under um, explored part of themselves that wasn't being expressed. And so their life demonstrated that at some point to them. And so what was once successful has now become the thing that's getting in the way of their marriage. And so we have to think a little bit more about authenticity beyond the notion of I am this. And we need to think about why am I this? Mm. You know what I mean? Like, where did this come from? What's influenced by it? Like, are these values mine or are they inherited? Mm. And we and and we can talk about it next a little bit about like class has an impact on that. Um, race has an impact on that. Gender has an impact on that. Um, but are they actually mine or did somebody give them to me? And therefore, am I actually living authentically or what I think is authentic? And I think that's where people can get stuck because they can say, well, that's just who I am. And I'm like, that's actually like an inherited social norm or defense strategy that you're uh, mm. living out of. But you've lived out of it for so long and you don't understand how it got there because you don't understand the context. Um, so you think it's personality, but it's actually a part of you, but not mm. the full picture of you. So, so yes. Yeah, so, so I think that that's one of the big, the big challenges around authenticity is actually understanding that what we think is authentic. It's a bit like that onion and I hate using it because everyone keeps using it or the Russian dolls notion, but that, that idea of authenticity is limited until we explore ourselves as well, not just accept uh, basic preferences because some preferences are, are defenses or social norms um, rather than personal preferences. It's interesting because that example you gave, I, I thought you were talking about me there for a second because that was exactly my my life. I, I had that behavior modeled for me as a child because my dad, working class, you know, construction worker, I wouldn't see him from one end of the week to the next. And, and and I grew up thinking that's that's what success is. That's what being a man in this world requires you to do. And unfortunately, my children had sort of grown up. They were in their teens before I realized that that wasn't what I needed to do as well. And, mm. and you know, taking the word regret out of it, had I realized it sooner, um, I'd have probably been able to have more qualitative time with my with my girls when they were younger, um, mm. you know doing very well to make up for it now but you don't miss that you know that you're missing the, the school events and stuff like that or the sports days that's the sort of thing that that kids remember and they grow up with um mm. because i certainly did but it, it's it's interesting as well i'm almost hearing from you that you you feel that as as part of leadership development and and manage any sort of employee development there should perhaps be an element of personal work within that where people get to understand a little bit about themselves on that sort of transformational level of values mm -hmm. and beliefs and identity and purpose so that they can start to separate out what is labels and what is reality for them and who they truly are. Is that fair to say? Yeah, yes, it is. I think, though, just to put a caveat, like leadership work isn't therapy. So and I say this because often people are like, are we doing therapy or coaching here? If something is getting in the way of your personal or professional evolution, awakening, experience, development, progress, then that's where you look 
for what personal development you need to do. It's not sending someone off to a personal development course for the crack. It's knowing that the thing that's getting in their way is where the personal development needs to happen. So I kind of have this belief. It's a bit like it's like pain in the body. You know, where pain shows up in the body is where you, you need to pay attention to trace back where it's rooted from. So when I work with a leader, if they're telling me they're getting stuck on relationships, then I might explore what their idea of a good relationship is. So that's where the personal development comes in. And um, if they're getting stuck on confidence, we'll have to explore like where they're getting stuck and why they're getting stuck. So yes, it's absolutely like, I think it's central, but it has to be appropriate for the for the challenges or limitations they're experiencing. It's not exploring it for the for the just for the transformation of it or for the development. It's exploring it to ease the leadership needs or development that they're that they're struggling with. Um, so yes, it's there, but it has to be within the context of what they need, as opposed to just a kind of a navel gazing process yeah. or a therapeutic process because I think they need it. It's not about that. It's actually has to be directly in relation to the thing that's holding them back. Um, and that's and what it, and, it, and it has to be driven by the individual, not mandated by the organization. Yeah. And sometimes the organization, now to be fair, sometimes the organization will say this leader needs work. And and I do have a 360 review that happens some, sometimes before I bring um, somebody in that they have full access to the information and we go through it together. But what I will say is that once we're in that room, often the real reason for that issue that's being pointed out presents. And that can be a personal issue or it could be a systemic issue in the organization. So, yes, I take into account what the organization is saying or what the feedback from managers are. But I also know that that individual has has a rationale for why that's happening. And that's as important. So we have to work at it from that place, even with the information from others. And, and I just think that's good practice. Like I I remember working with a leader. I, I worked with him for about two years and he said, you know, what? come work with my team because he'd made such progress. Right? So he said, come work with my team. I'd love you to do some work with my team. They could do with it. So I went in and he wasn't in the room because I was doing work with the team and I was never going to cross the line of, of sharing. But I found out in that room that the work he'd done with me privately in coaching didn't transfer to his work at work. Even though he told me it did, even though his perception of it was, it didn't transfer because his team were having the same issues that he came to me about. And when I worked through it, I realized what happened was his perception of himself changed, but his behaviors hadn't. And I hadn't included the organization enough to measure that the changes were happening, whereas now I do. So now I'm very clear that for real progress, it's not just as the individual think they're progressing, it's how are they behaving in the system? And what kind of evidence do we have that that's happening? Um, and there's loads of ways to do it, but I don't just think the individual's perception is enough anymore mm -hmm. because it's not enough. Like, and I think that's where a lot of leadership development is losing out is it tells leaders new information, sends them off into the world. And then the leaders have to do what they have to do the way they've always done it. And it, it's kind of causing this tension where I hear people say, oh yeah, people are saying to me, oh, you've been on a leadership course because I'm using new language or using a new approach. And I'm like, yeah, because you haven't integrated it into the way you work so they can tell. But also, they may be pointing out that you're talking the talk, but not walking the walk. Mm. That kind of feedback from your team is information about you doing something. You know, because generally, generally, if you've made improvements and the team feel it, they're not pointing out in a snacky way. They're just glad that they have an improvement. And that can take a while to acknowledge. So I don't expect that feedback straight away. But generally, when teams see that they're going to benefit, 
they tend to be happy with the results to some degree. Mm. So if you're getting kind of that kind of snarky feedback, something's happening that isn't um, translating as clearly from what you're doing to what they're experiencing, or there's enough water under the bridge that they don't trust you to actually uphold the progress. Um, but again, all, without that feedback, we can't explore that. So you just think you're doing your best and people and, aren't necessarily getting that experience. And part of the bravery of being a leader is 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 wanting and needing and demanding almost that feedback so that you can integrate it and, and improve your improve your performance, if you like to put it quite mm. bluntly. And that that can be tricky for some of us because that plays into some of our fears around receiving feedback like that. But it, it, it does sort of separate the wheat from the chaff in terms of people who genuinely want to hold leadership positions and those who just want the kind of perceived power of it um, mm -hmm. because you need to be prepared to take on board that feedback. It's the most valuable feedback you'll ever get. Yeah, and I, like I, I've seen, so, so when I was doing my training, we had to do a number of 360 reviews. So I had to go and ask um, for feedback from multiple people. And I remember my classmates, like they were freaking out. And I remember um, when I go to organizations, they're freaking out. One of the things I found interesting, because I'm dyslexic, I'm used to really negative feedback in, in like education. So I, I wasn't expecting necessarily positive feedback. I, I was expecting people to be very blunt because I'm, I'm very blunt with people. So I was like, oh, that's a good invitation. But one of the things I learned from that process was the vulnerability is directly related to your conflict with accepting people experiencing you the way they experience you. So what I mean by that is I somebody very dear to my heart replied and he he wanted also to tell me that it was him which was even funnier one of the questions was when I first met you like when you first met me what did you think and he wrote arrogant on that one and then I said knowing me for as long as you know me what would you think and he he wrote confident assertive um helpful or kind something along those lines and now, first of all, from unconscious bias, we know that we label confident, assertive women as arrogant and bossy. So I didn't know that at the time because I wasn't really aware of this stuff. But I was really intrigued that somebody would find me arrogant um, because, because I'm actually constantly like adapting my opinion. So I was really intrigued. But what I learned was that I don't have control over how other people experience me, right? And what I have control over is the goodwill I bring, the intention, the adapting I do to be helpful in environments or to create connection. But people are always going to have a reaction to you. Like, that's OK. But you have to be able to filter that and know when the feedback is feedback for you to utilize and when the feedback is feedback about their experience of you, which is filtered through their filter. Mm -hmm. That's not always explained when we do these feedback cycles. So like th the interesting thing is that feedback was the most helpful feedback because now I know when I first meet people and I've actually, I've spoken to people about this, they can, they can have like two, I'm like Marmite, two really strong reactions. One is they can think she's really arrogant or two, they can think, well, she actually is really confident about what she's saying. And I realized that those two reactions <laughs> are something I have to be aware of. Like when I take a stage, you know, I don't have the time to build a relationship and show them that I can be really confident about my opinion because I'm willing to change it when new information arises. Mm -hmm. So I can say, Ray, I believe in this. And then you say, Sheila, I did you know about this? And I'd be like, no, okay, that changes my opinion. Most people don't have that 
um, like welcomeness of new data and changing their opinions, I do. So I can be really confident because I can change my opinion in front of you live without feeling like I did something. Like I can, I don't feel embarrassed. I think that that's good that I can be informed and change. But I need to know it because on a stage, people don't get to know me well enough to know whether they can trust me or not, to know whether I'm going to be compassionate or not. Um, when I write newsletters, I learned this recently, um, I can come across really, apparently really direct and um, turning my thoughts into writing. So when I get feedback, people are like, oh, you're very like, but when they work with me, it's, I don't work this way, but I get the results through using like fierce conversations, ac compassionate accountability and aligned action. So for me, feedback is really important, but you need to know how to filter it to use it properly. Because if I had panicked about the arrogant feedback from one person out of 20, I could have suddenly stopped being confident when I first meet people to make people feel at ease with me. But I realized that I would be playing into a role that, that society gives me. I'd be undervaluing the research and work that I do. Um, I'd be playing into some weird power dynamics by trying to be something I'm not for acceptance. But then there's other feedback that I get, like apparently I repeat myself a lot. Um, it's a dyslexic thing. I accept it in myself. But if I'm going to talk to someone and I repeat myself 15 times, they're probably going to feel like I'm not listening to them mm. if I make the point or they're going to. I've had feedback from my lovely partner to say, I understood you the first time you said that. So if it's frustrating for people and it's getting in the way of my connection with them, then I need to work on that. But we have to be able to filter feedback to know when to take it and when not to. But there's a book called Why something like Why why incompetent men become leaders. And the book speaks about something that's really important, which is a lot of people who don't want feedback won't take feedback. So it doesn't matter um, that you get it. It doesn't matter if you put them through 360 reviews. Um, if people are having, and I hate using the word narcissistic because it's overused, but have traits that are, are so self-serving that everyone around them is just a pawn in them getting their needs met, well, then feedback won't matter no matter how honest you are, no matter how direct they will pawn it off as something else. So one of the things we have to think about around feedback is, am I scared of the feedback, which is one thing, or do I not want it, which is another thing. So people who don't want feedback, even putting them through 360 reviews like leaders after doing reviews with them, it doesn't work because they have a reason for it. It's never them. Um, they they dismiss it as unimportant. Um Whereas people who are scared of feedback, which is a normal response when you're worried about what that's going to mean about you and your identity. First, they actually usually have to learn to filter it. Like I'm like, is that feedback because of the organization you're in? Is that feedback because of that relationship with that person? And then is that feedback because of your behavior? Like, is there a pattern? Have multiple people said it? So I do think feedback's important, but I think we now have a feedback culture, which isn't critically thinking about feedback. And, and, we need to critically think about feedback because some feedback is actually harmful. Some feedback is about putting you in your place, especially if you're a minority or sorry, if you've experienced minoritization or marginalization, then you may have people giving you feedback, which is get back in your box. And um, if you're somebody who doesn't take feedback, they may just lie to you and tell you good things. So sometimes I see that. Mm. Um, and if you're somebody who wants feedback but is nervous, you might have to learn how to read feedback properly. Um, and, and I just don't think we put enough, because we've become like all about feedback culture. 
we're not thinking critically about the fact that all feedback comes from a person who unconsciously or consciously has an agenda as well. So you you have to look for patterns in feedback rather than individual feedback because sometimes it's not helpful. Hmm. And uh, I guess you do work with organisations where you you can help them to um, manage and 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 handle the whole feedback culture that they want to have. Yes, but what I will say is that usually the challenge is that that there's actually a cultural piece has to happen. So just embedding feedback doesn't necessarily make it safe for people. So one of the things like I've worked with people who've been very harmed by feedback culture because actually feedback culture was a, a defensive way to let everyone say what they want, but no accountability. So if somebody had like a dig at you, they'd give it to you as feedback. Um, or if somebody was trying to take control of a department, they'd give you feedback that told you back off. Whereas when fee- when the feedback culture wasn't there, they it was easier to spot it for what it was. So I, I think, look, any tool that is positive can be weaponized. <laughs> and so, so I think that to help an organization have a feedback culture, they first need to be able to, to identify what's helpful and unhelpful feedback and also methods of feedback being safe. Like, some some teams are safe enough to give feedback in front of a group. Some teams aren't safe enough to give feedback in front of a group. And you need people who know how to critically think and measure that before they decide that every team should be doing it in front of everyone, because actually it, it can create really unhealthy shaming experiences for people. And I've seen it do a lot of harm. So I do help people, but it, it's a very complex piece of work that needs people to understand that critical thinking involved. And I guess it, it does ultimately need to be contracted for as well. It needs to be implicit that that whatever the culture is, this this is this is what we do and how we do it and support people within that so that they yeah. don't end up exposed. Yeah. And, and I think also one of the things I would do before making any changes is I would do temperature checks about how people feel like employees feel and how they feel the resistance, what resistance they might have so that I can understand what will what might really be happening in the organization unconsciously and also what might be the safest way to introduce a feedback culture that actually increases performance and isn't necessarily weaponized against mm. employees or managers or mm. or leaders i want to come to the to the, the whole piece around inclusion because when we had the pre-production conversation uh, you 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 offered me a, a paradigm shift um whereby I suddenly realized that that inclusion wasn't at the exclusion of the, the dominant group or, or culture. It's, mm. it's actually that that's a vital piece to make that part of the inclusion as well. So do, do you want to just share that with our listeners? Because it was incredibly profound for me and I'd love for them to, to hear it. Yeah. So so I want to start by saying the idea of excluding anyone actually comes from oppressive norms. Okay, and and one of the parts of oppressive norms is that we center usually white men as so when we think of leaders like Google, thankfully, have updated. But when you used to Google leader, it was only white men that presented usually. Um, But generally, when we design systems for work, they're usually designed around a kind of a white man's norm. Right. And they're usually designed unconsciously with a white man um, at the center. And so. An example of this might be that, you know, the the 40 hour work week that we all work. Well, the only reason that that is that is kind of normalized across the world to different degrees 
And um, I know it shifts in different parts of the world with siesta and things, which is great. But the reason that we'll say in the West, it's so normalized is that there was a time where a man would have a wife who was at home taking care of the house. And that wife was usually, it was usually a white couple. So a, a white man was able to go to work and earn money and progress because all other things, including his bookkeeping and his, his own personal secretary were taken care of by his wife usually, right? So we have a system that burns everybody out because most of us don't have that housewife perfect image at home doing everything for us. And so people are going to work, men and women, without somebody to take care of all these extra needs. But that's an example of, and, and I say a white man because a lot of people um, of color and a lot of uh, different racial um, families would have had different experiences of work. They weren't necessarily getting you know, senior positions where they had that much money so the wife didn't have to work. So a lot of our norms are built around, unconsciously around um, norms for white men, or which were once normal for white men. But one of the issues is that when we think of diversity, most people think about diversity as something different to that, right? So when somebody says to me, oh, you know, what's your diversity? I'll usually say woman because I'm white. And I know like that's been normalized as the dominant norm. And even though, by the way, white people are actually the least number of people in the world, um, the actual majority of people are, are actually people of color and and there's all sorts of terms for that but actually a lot of marginalized groups actually make up the dominant numbers in the world but we still live off dominant white as a dominant um experience so basically when you think of inclusion and you only think of it as including people different to a white male you're actually still working off an exclude exclusion norm and a um exploitive kind of norm so the issue is that inclusion actually includes everybody so inclusion includes white men it includes white women it includes people of color it includes um able-bodied people disabled people it includes neurodiverse people neurodivergent but one of the challenges with it is that the other identities that are marginalized um or or deprioritize next to white norms or what or white male norms and um, often have to fight to to be heard seen and valued in a room where there's a dominant male white norm so whether that's there's a white male man there's a, a white man who speaks up and is listened to more by everybody this isn't just by by like white people and um, this this is kind of universal and so what happens is that a lot of the time we're, we're rejecting that identity and and that's where then white men and look, the majority of my clients are white men um, are getting really frustrated because they're feeling unimportant, deprioritized, um, like they don't belong in these spaces anymore. But the thing is, inclusion means that actually we all belong because we all have intersectional identity. So being a white man is, is, is like 5% of your identity, right? Because your class, your religion, your trauma, your family history, your, your ethnicity, your, you know, your religion, all of these things, there's, there's more than that, but let's just say all of those things, your neurodiversity, whether you're able-bodied or disabled, all of these things play into it, into your experience in society and whether you are oppressed or privileged. But what we don't do is we don't talk to white men about the fact that as a white man, the first thing everyone sees is that you're, is they've projected that you're white and that you're a man, right? So some people present as a white man, but they aren't, but we project it as a society because we, we've normalized two kind of cisgenders. And so when people meet you, 
that's what they see. So that's actually what they react to first. And while you might have all these other parts of your identity, because you have those parts, you have privilege that people without those parts don't have. It's, it's, it doesn't mean you don't also have oppressive experiences. You don't have experiences of being excluded or experiences of, of difficulty. It just means that those parts of you, you don't even realize are privileged. And we never, by the way, no, none of us know our privilege until someone tells us because privilege is what we should all have. But people who don't have the privilege we have can tell you that you have it. So I'm often told as a white woman, you're given stages that um, women, black women aren't, brown women aren't given. And I originally was like, that's not true. But I started to look on the stages because I didn't believe that was true because I'd never seen it because it was my privilege. I started to look on the stages I was on and oh my God, were they right? Mm. So privilege isn't something we know about and it doesn't mean we don't have disadvantage. It just means that in certain settings, we have a leg up on other people that is unfair. And so we're not competing equally for jobs, opportunities. Um, and, you know, a, a very prime example of that would be your class, the class you were born into and the mannerisms that that class um, give you has an impact on how you move. So a middle-class white man is gonna have a very different experience to an upper-class white man, right? We know that we've seen it, okay? But a black working-class man and a white working-class man also have very different experiences. And the only difference is visually their race. So that's, when we think about inclusion, we have to think about intersectionality, which is all the parts of our identity. But we also have to understand that we have parts of our identity that give us an unfair advantage over other people. So I was in a, a room the other day and somebody said to me, Sheila, I worked hard for my position. Like I've worked really hard for my position. How can you tell me that I've had privilege? And I said, if you were a disabled man, do you think you would have the same position? And he stood back. I said, if you were a black man, would you have the same position? He said, yeah, I don't think that would make an issue make a difference I said did you check how many um black men access university in Ireland compared to white men and he said no I was like you should check that so what we have to do is we have to think about not just did we work hard because most people work hard like the women the women and men in in, in third world countries who are bringing water to their family they work really hard but because they don't have the privilege of what we have in a first world country they don't have the same rewards and that's the true for every that's true for every part of our identity. So for me, inclusion has to be that we all belong in the space, but we have to understand the power that we have in that space and how we may be being given privilege or advantage over others. Even if we don't know it, we have to be willing for others to tell us because none of us know our own privilege. Someone has to tell us because it's our norm and we think that it's other people's normal experience. Usually, unless we're we're actively racist or act actively homophobic or actively bigoted most people think oh I have the same like other people have the same experience as me because that's just how we think the world is through our lens so what we have to do is say actually to being to be included like for me we have our obvious identities but ha look I'll bring it back to the patriarchy because I, I think this is a lovely example right and um, a lot of feminism is about undoing the patriarchy. And I think that's really important. Now, before any of the men jump off and think she's about to go on a feminist rant, wait a second, this is really powerful. I have worked with men um, in groups who were struggling um, with mental health and suicidal ideation for a long time. And when I trace it back, it came from the same issues that women are talking about, but a different impact on men. 
So the impact that I've seen is that from the patriarchy is that, or patriarchal systems is that men can't feel they have to be strong. So that creates a load of other issues for their relationships, for their mental health, for their purpose and meaningfulness in life. Um, but that is that is their the, that is their expression of the same issue that women talk about feeling unsafe at night and walking the streets, or that women say they don't feel respected by men. Feminism and the patriarchy isn't about men versus women. It's about understanding oppressive systems and how it harms everybody. And one of the things, like I love men, I have two brothers that I adore, and I have a dad that. I absolutely adore. And when I look at how systems have impacted me, it's really hard for me not to then also look across at the at the at these people that I love and say, how did it impact them? And when we think about inclusion, we need to think about bringing all of that into the mix. We can't um, ignore our privilege, but we also, by acknowledging our privilege, we can acknowledge our disadvantage without getting into like oppressive Olympics, competing with people. Like one of the things I see is saying, you know, um, coming from a working class background saying, well, I worked really hard for what I've got, as if that somehow changes the fact you also have a privilege with your race or with your gender or with your financial opportunity or with your educational opportunity or with your your healthcare opportunities. Um, and, and so inclusion has to be all of it, but it means that we have to look at something and allow it to be true, even if we don't want it to be true that it's advantaging us. So I'm going to give a basic one. I, I have stood next to men the same age as me with less qualifications who were white, um, who were given jobs, roles and speaking opportunities that I was better educated and experienced for. But I knew that I didn't hit the criteria unconsciously that the people making the choices picked. And like, I mean, CV side by side, if you didn't know, like if you took away jet if you put our CVs by, side by side, it was like blatant because for a long time, I didn't believe it was happening. But the more senior I am, the more I'm working with senior leaders, the more I can see this unconscious bias play out in decisions. Um, and I can see that when you get, I'm going to talk to men here, when you get men who have worked really hard for what they have and they've been, and they've had to overcome disadvantages and then you tell them you have white male privilege, of course, they're going to react to that because they think you're discounting the rest of their identity. And like, none of us like that. If you tell me, oh, Shirley, you've got white female privilege, which I do, but if you say, oh, you've got white privilege and you ignore all of the disadvantages I have, I'm going to react to you. I'm going to reject what you're saying unless I understand that it all counts and that all I have to do is accept that I have privileges that other people don't have and that that's unfair. It doesn't make me a bad person. It doesn't mean I didn't work hard. It doesn't mean that my other struggles didn't happen, but it does mean that when it comes to race and gender, I have an advantage over other people. And we have to acknowledge that. Um, because if we don't acknowledge that, inclusion can't happen because whenever you come into the space where there's lots of different identities, you're going to act out the power imbalances that exist because you're ignoring one of the powers, which is your presentation makes you more palatable for success than other presentations, whether it's gender, uh, disability, uh, race, ethnicity, um, religion, because some religion is visible. So if you can't acknowledge that, whenever you come into inclusion spaces, you're actually going to cause harm and you're gonna find it really hard to be in that space. But equally, if you think inclusion is just about the other, you're not gonna feel safe in that space either. So change can't happen if some people aren't in the room. But what we want is that when you're in the room, you know that you have disadvantages, but advantages. 
And if people can own where they have advantages in the room where we're all being inclusive, then you can actually be part of the solution. One of the issues that a lot of inclusion movements are having issues with is that when people walk into the room who have advantages and they don't acknowledge it, they dominate the room and they don't even know they're doing it because they're used to being important and being heard. Um, and yeah, and there's, there's loads of examples of it, but inclusion has to be intersectional identity, which is you are more than just a white man, but the fact you're a white man matters too. That will have an advantage. But we also have to acknowledge you have other things at play that might be disadvantages in your experience that disadvantage you against another white man. Um, and so we, we yeah, we, we have to think bigger than the other being different. And we realize actually all of us are diverse. We have multiple parts to our identity um, that is at play every day. Um, and that if we can think that way, I think we're going to create a lot more buy-in from, from people who have that advantage. Whereas I think when we reject those people as only that advantage, which is also oppressive because they're more than that, that, that presentation, they're more than that advantage. Um, then yeah, you create this tension where, where in my experience, white men are having a really difficult time understanding this because actually a lot of the time when they're in the conversations, they're being blamed rather than being walked through understanding their advantages and, and bringing out their compassion to it. Now, don't get me wrong, some don't want it. I've heard people say, I have no interest. It makes no difference in my life. And I'm like, oh my God. But there, the majority of men that I meet do want to know, but they also have, and I, like because of patriarchy, they have a very limited sense of their own identity sometimes. So they're really careful and they're really conscious that people might take that away from them. And so it creates a reaction. Um, whereas for me, inclusion has to be everyone and all of everyone. And it has to be about understanding power and how we automatically have power. Just interesting, because in, in this part of the world, then, um, because it's fair to say that the, the majority of organizations are led by white middle-aged men, um, that, that actually allowing inclusion to fully become real and and effective and and the norm that there's there's a little bit of resistance there like there's a it sounds to me like there's a piece of work to be done with our with our white middle-aged men leaders to to almost give them comfort that this isn't about throwing you out and replacing you with something else because you're the you know you're the the, the status quo it's about your part of you're part of the change, you're part of the inclusion. So what sort of traction is mm. this currently getting? So, so here's the thing, right? So a lot, of, a lot of what's happening is tokenistic, which is also why there's a reaction. So it's like, oh, it's like, by the way, I've yet to meet um, a person with a disadvantaged experience being... Um, given a position they don't deserve so I want to say this but tokenism is that the reason they were given the position was because of their identity but actually they probably deserved it five years ago when it wasn't given so the giving somebody of disadvantage with an experience of being disadvantaged a position I've never seen someone who didn't who didn't actually top the requirements being given the job but but the way that they are given the job might be tokenistic it doesn't mean that they don't have value to add at that level and I think that's important to say just because people are doing it tokenistically doesn't mean they don't deserve the position like research has shown that women are often I think it was two to five years ahead of their male counterparts at every at every leadership level because women are expected 
to have proven themselves more than men are, for instance, right? And so that tells you that that when a woman gets the position, while it might be given from a tokenistic place that they're trying to even the board, her place isn't tokenistic. Like she has more value often than her peers to add. And I'm just using the gender because there's some there's better research on that sometimes than other pieces. Mm-hmm. But I think one of the challenges is that it can be seen as tokenistic, but also it can be this notion. So that white man doesn't need to be thrown out. But if his competence in inclusion is limited and he is not willing to do that work, then maybe he doesn't deserve his place. And that's different to throwing someone out. That's saying you are in a leadership position, you are expected to lead in something and your inability to grow here is actually what's removing you from your position. And I think that a lot of the people coming up through the ranks now um, are brought up in more of a social justice understanding and understand inclusion better. So like there's a lot more understanding coming up through the ranks. So senior leaders for the first time, we have intergenerational workplace like we've never had it before. Senior leaders have juniors who have more knowledge in certain things than they do. That's very threatening when your position has been based on being the hero leader, having all the knowledge. So I think that one of the things that is required of senior leaders is is to actually look at this properly. And it does have traction. Some organizations are so invested because they know it benefits their bottom line and that it does like the research is there it's showing us this um it's still under research but it's still there like it's pointing us there Mm. but also i i think that that so so some organizations are adopting it other organizations um are are actually designed oppressively so so um only certain people from certain universities are promoted only certain people in certain clubs are promoted so these things these gates into promotion are being challenged now and so those organizations are resisting and holding and i see a lot of like a lot of men in positions of power now believed that there is a straight line to success for them and they got it so they don't understand how somebody doesn't have a straight line to success. And they might say, oh, I worked really hard. And they, they probably did, because I'm not saying that success doesn't mean you don't work hard, but you might not have worked as hard as your peers with different identities did. And they may not have got the same results for the same effort. And I think that's what we need to think about. So some organizations are embracing it. Some organizations are being tokenistic about it, like sending people on inclusion and um, training, but aren't actually changing the systems which inherently keep exclusion and oppressive systems as norm some organizations are like saying all the right stuff um have lots of like liberalism built into them but actually aren't developing their people to understand what's really happening like inclusion is really really complex and and i want to say this because people say to me they never think it's possible inclusion isn't about ticking a box getting somewhere that we can say it's done inclusion is a practice it's a little bit like going to the gym it's like saying, oh, but we'll never have the perfect body and it will be sustainable. No, because you have to keep going to the gym to sustain it. Inclusion is that. Inclusion is not like a tick box, which I think sometimes the diversity agenda has become is like, oh, well, we have a diverse workforce. Tick. Are they performing? Are you supporting them? Are they growing? Are they getting into leadership positions? Because we know that, and I hate to do the triangle image, but we know that the further up in organizations in Ireland and the UK that you go, the whiter and the more male it becomes. We know that. So if your organization is diverse, is the diversity stuck at the bottom? Because if it is, it means inclusion isn't happening. Anti-oppressive inclusion isn't happening. It means that those at top haven't actually grown to understand how to 
be inclusive, how to practice inclusion and how to create performance and results through inclusion. And that's kind of where I really focus is that inclusion is about how we do things, but it's still about doing things. We still want good results. We know that the more diverse your board is, actually we've seen an increase in revenue from that. And we know that there's better turnover when you have a diverse board, but not just sitting a person on the board and saying, now we've got a diverse board. You have to be influenced by that person. And that means that the people who were taught unconsciously not to be influenced by anything other than their other white male colleagues aren't going to be influenced by the diversity around them. And what I mean by diversity in that sense is by people different to that image. So what we have to do is we have to help people to understand that inclusion is actually a practice of performance as well as a practice of just decent like moral understanding of other people's experiences. So I think it's complex. I don't think it's a result. I think it's a practice. Um, But it's really hard to say to someone who honestly believes that they've worked really hard to where they've got to and they have, to say that part of why they're there is because of their identity. It's really hard for people to hear that because it, it, it shakes their narrative about themselves. And that's why they need, that's why we all need support. Like I didn't like hearing as a white woman, you're getting stages that women of color aren't getting. I was like, not a hope. I've worked really hard. Like I'm, I have loads of disadvantage, but when I looked at those stages, they were telling the truth. Yeah. They were telling the truth. And and look around organizations and, and the evidence is there. You don't need to, to go through bundles and bundles of research. Just, just have a look around you when, when we do manage to get back into our office. So just to sort of round off the, the, the inclusion conversation, we, I don't know if you're aware, in the, in the UK, they've got uh, what they call the Freddie standard. It's uh, fairness, mm. respect, equality, diversity, and inclusion. And, and one of the things I liked about it was that unlike most other, let's call them badges, that one would put on one's website, you actually have to, it's not about passing a dry audit. Mm. Here's all our systems and processes through a a mechanism of employee engagement practice and hard yards you have to demonstrate that it is core to your organizational culture this Mm. is who we are as an organization we are inclusive and that needs to be demonstrable at all times and i think that that on one hand that really scares some people because it's clearly not tokenistic but Mm. on the other hand what really excites me about it is that organizations can't you can't buy it you've yeah. actually got to do the hard yards behind it is freddie uh, uh, uh is it in the in ireland as well are you f- familiar with it so i'm familiar with it because i do some work for the irish center of diversity um and they have a counterpart which is um i can't remember they have an english brand which uses freddie so we would actually trans like share work so mm. i am familiar with it it's not as common in Ireland like it's not a standard that everyone knows about but it's definitely used by the Irish Centre of Diversity in their work mm. um, so we we are very familiar with it from that point of view yeah uh, and I, I say I love the fact that it you know you can't just go in if an organization is going to go for that standard they need to be prepared to go for that standard it's not going to be get a consultant in and they'll sort out your processes and you'll you'll get awarded mm. a little badge You've really got to work at it and you've got to live it and breathe it. But it's, you know, and for that, I think it holds so much value because it's, it's real. Mm, mm. Like I'm trying to think of another practice that we have that we've normalized. Like 
employee engagement for a long time wasn't considered important, but now we know it has a direct impact. And so we do things that encourage employees to be engaged. I think inclusion is a practice um, and different organizations will have to do it differently. Um, there will be different levels of awareness because we're actually born into systems that are naturally oppressive. And what I mean by that is the system gives power to certain groups and preferences power to certain groups, right? And so we've all been brought into oppressive systems and we don't need, like, that's our norm. That's what we take for granted. We don't necessarily have a different system that we've seen. Like even capitalism, it has an oppression to it, obviously, because some of us win, some of us lose in it. And um, inherently, you know, not because of generally just how hard we work. Um, so when you're creating these systems and organizations, you are unconsciously going to repeat oppression, even when you're trying to be inclusive. One of the things that I was I couldn't understand when I was working with organizations was um, like when I worked with them was this resistance when I pointed out that they were doing something that was oppressive. And I couldn't because they were like, yeah, but I'm doing this inclusive thing. And I worked with I, I worked with this a brilliant um, psychotherapist, but she and coach, but she does a lot around diversity and inclusion, um, Myra Chan. And she said, Sheila, that's because you're pointing at the anti-oppressive side of inclusion. You're saying you can do all these inclusion activities, but th if this exists, if you continue this, it's still oppressive. And I think that that's where sometimes organizations find themselves challenged is they have such good intentions and people do as well. We have such good intentions. We want to be inclusive. But then when it's pointed out where we're not being inclusive, we get really defensive. Mm. And I think that the ultimate practice of inclusion is looking at how do I include people and how am I unconsciously excluding people? And if I can do that, then inclusion can be a living practice because we're looking at how to undo what isn't working and how to add what is working. But a lot of in, like tokenistic inclusion only wants to add things. It only wants to like add interventions, but it's not addressing the fact that uh, the reason that, you know, it, it, it talks about being an equal employer, but actually somebody in a wheelchair can't get into the building. That's an, like, that's an oppressive thing that they're looking away from. Or it says it's inclusive, but somebody with neurodiversity can't, can't work there because um, they, they need loads of noise or they need loads of quiet and the environment doesn't supply that. So like, we have to also look at what we're not doing for inclusion to work not just or or what we're doing that limits certain people accessing it as well as what we can do to bring to keep people included whereas a lot of the time it's sexier to talk about what we're doing to be inclusive you know demonstrating that we're inclusive than it is to say do you know what we've discovered that we're actually exclusive in this way and we're trying to address it mm. and it takes time to address inbuilt oppression well it's kind of used as a marketing piece isn't it really by a lot of organizations yeah yeah. And I don't mind. Like the more you advertise being inclusive, the more we're going to expect you to be inclusive. So fine, like get your mileage out of it. But you're going to come across a lot of issues if you're not also addressing the oppressive norms that are there. Like if the top of your senior leadership are, are very male and very white, but your entry level aren't, you have inbuilt oppression and you don't know where it is. And you've got to work on that. You've replicated something that that preferences a certain type of oppression. Um, or if you have entry bodies of neurodiverse people, but the further up you go, you don't, or you have a, a great entry level of people with all sorts of disabilities and abilities, but actually the further up you don't, like it tells you, or what if you don't even have them in the organization? Like they can't even get in the door for whatever reason, like metaphorically or literally. Um, and like, none of us have all those answers, right? So this is the point. It's not about saying, oh, I'm so terrible because we have this. It's about saying, 
I'll see it and I'm going to address it. See it, do something. It's, it's, it's rather than see it, avoid it, which is a defense that we have towards anything that might not look good about us, either individually as organizations. We like to look away from things that challenge our idea of ourselves being good and positive. We like to look away from it. And to create true inclusion, all of us need to be able to see how we have an unfair advantage to people or disadvantaging people unfairly. So the organization need to look at that and we need to look at what we can do to be more inclusive. So for me, I think as this evolves over the next 10 years, we're gonna see a lot more accountability. Whereas at the moment, it's a lot more about goodwill gestures. You know, it's about, you know, creating a nice atmosphere. We're gonna see a bit more accountability, I think, as we move forward, because people are saying, you know, you, you say that like, that something is halal, but, um, and this is an example Myra Chan gave me. It's like, you serve a halal item but you're serving it in a pub. So actually the fact you're serving it in a pub is, is the part that isn't welcoming, even though you're adding on something to the menu. And I think that that's true. Myra's brilliant. Like, I think that's just a brilliant example that she mm. gave us because it made perfect sense to me. It's like me saying, oh, we're going to promote, everybody's going to have equal opportunities for promotion, but the only people we accept in this job have a certain, edu- like a certain university education, a certain education, um certain availability like 70 hours a week which means it takes away lots of parents it takes away lots of people with chronic illnesses um so you might add on the thing that says we promote everyone but you keep something in place that keeps people out and we have to think about that so i think we're getting i think we're going to move towards that because more people are saying that's great but like why 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 is this why is like loads of identities missing in your workplace why are loads of people's experiences not in your workplace Mm. Um, which we weren't thinking about we were just thinking how do we include people but actually we're not thinking about how are we excluding people unconsciously and sometimes consciously is there some sort of an evolutionary challenge here sheila in, in that like so we're we're part of the the family of great apes and when you read books uh some books um they talk about how so how socialized we are but how we're able to organize organize ourselves into hierarchies mm-hmm. and that's why we've become a, a successful species within that family because we're able to organize ourselves into social groups that where everybody knows their their place in it and you can kind of rely on right well that's what you do and you're going to do that which allows me to do this thing over here um and i'm thinking specifically of the book sapiens mm-hmm. but so, so is there so, some sort of an evolutionary battle here? Are, are, we, are we evolved enough to truly be able to do this or am I just making excuses? Yeah, so that's a really common question. So I have two things. So, so two things. Let me say, even the notion that we're successful is interesting. Mm-hmm. Like humans, co- humans cause every war that's ever happened. We do the most harm to other humans um, more than any animal ever has. We like are we successful or are we or are we very ego driven so I, I I always put that question when people because there's an assumption that because we're dominating the world that we're successful but actually if you look at it we we harm the world more than any other species we are actually moving our own species most near to extinction than any other species is in the world so I I, I put a question there are we mm-hmm. successful right mm-hmm. that's my first one yeah and then my second one is Yes and no about evolution. Like I, I, I'm careful because um, 
I don't see it as a belief system. So I, I'm careful because evolution, depending on who you're speaking to, is is considered fit, like accurate or not. I think it is an evolution of how we are towards each other. And what I mean by that is there was a time where we pooped ourselves. Right. Like it's that simple. We pooped ourselves. We didn't go to toilets. We didn't go to holes in the ground. We didn't wipe our butts. We just pooped ourselves. And now we use toilets and we have fresheners in the toilet and and uh, we generally don't talk about using the toilet, even though every single human has to like excretes things. But now we don't do that. We, we've we've created a social norm where crapping on ourselves isn't normal and is often judged and rejected. Right. And we've created things like nappies for people who can't hold it. There's we have bags for people whose their intestines don't work. Like we have done lots of things so that we can interact with each other without smelling crappy, right? Loads of things. Because we prefer a nice smelling thing. I kind of think inclusion is the same thing. Like I don't really want to be in a room that gives somebody an unfair advantage over another, not because of hard work or because of intelligence, but simply because their skin is whiter than than somebody else's or they have a penis instead of a vagina or like I, I think these things are, are were re- originally built into the roles that we gave men and women and now that that's being challenged now that gender is being challenged we're actually having to evolve past unhealthy socially accepted norms which is making us rewrite it um, and we rewrote it before we, re- we rewrote it when women got the vote and people were like we're letting women out of control what are we doing you know, I think this is ev- like a social evolution, right? Mm. That's what I think it is. We're all built, like there's an unconscious bias that we all want to be around people the same as us. Like that is true, right? We all do that. But one of the issues is with that is that we've actually said that some groups of people are more deserving than others. That's that's being human, infl- like we've done that. That isn't, that has been socially, like we've done that to people. We've done it to people so that we feel special, so that we can contain power, um, so that we have advantages. And that partially ties into capitalism. Before capitalism, there was other social norms that existed. It partially ties into heteronormative marriages where you got married, so you'd split the wealth, but the wealth was always passed down through the male line, um, given to the man, but passed from man to man. So like, there's all these systemic things that are invisible, but very visible if you think about it, like patriarchal is male second name, uh, male finance to male, like it goes on like that. Um, you know, the, the sexism, heteronormativity is this notion that a man and a woman are together and that they have roles in society together to play, that's being challenged. So we're outgrowing that. Mm. But unfortunately what that does is it means that it challenges people to look at themselves and question themselves. And, that's hard right like that's hard to do but it's no different to any other we'll say social evolutions that have occurred um I don't necessarily think it's a biological and I know people argue the biological stuff all the time um I think that a lot of the biological norms are rooted in these social norms but but people don't always understand how it comes back to that I'm going to give an example there's a notion that that um people that black people experience pain less than white people. And so this is actually inbuilt into a lot of healthcare. Um, And they think that they named that as a biological thing. There was no evidence that it was biological and it meant, and it means to this day, we still under medicate and give less pain relief to, to black people than white people. And there's evidence for it. So like there are things that we label as biological that are originally built on an assumption that is a social norm or is about a social norm. Um, 
So from my point of view, it's no different to learning to eat with utensils or learning to poop in the toilet. Um, being inclusive is a practice that is better for society and for, for its people. Mm. Being, being exclusive and continuing the oppressive norms is better for a certain group of people. And that's where there is resistance is there is a fear we're going to lose power. Um, and there is there is a fear that we won't hold the position we hold now. And I would say that, yes, that that is threatening. But actually, in an inclusive system, you'll hold a position. It will just be equal. That's mm. not something to be frightened of. Mm. It's a lot of the fear about losing power is because you're still thinking that there's an oppressive norm. And so you'll be below Whereas what I'm talking about in, in terms of an inclusive system rather than an oppressive system is that we, we flatline. Yeah, and there's there is no, no above and below. Yeah. No, there is just, mm. we all contribute what we have. Um, and, and, and look, that look, this stuff is complex because that also contradicts a lot around capitalism, um, which is where a lot of the West is built on a lot of individualism. But if you look at other, other parts of the world or other norms, collectivism is normalized and you'll see a different way of managing so a lot of people who resist these changes, I think, aren't aware that they're functioning within oppressive systems and they, they see themselves as losing a position going under someone and they fear that, as opposed to what I'm talking about is actually if you create a system that's fair and that people have equal opportunities and that there isn't unfair advantages, then actually you don't need to fear because you just still get to thrive. You just don't get to have power over people. Yeah. You, know? you get to thrive collectively. Yes. Yes. But as you're so, so one of the beautiful things about Shore et al is doing this research and, and has talked about this, which is it, like really good inclusion in groups. What we all need is a sense of individual individuality and belonging. So this is what a lot of um, bad inclusion work does, which is say it says we're all the same. But actually, inclusion is saying we are all different and have something really valuable to add. So let me be individual and belong and and so that's an inclusive system that we're trying to create so you don't need to be scared of that because you're still going to be special in your own right and contribute you just won't have power over people through unfair advantage you will actually be there in your own right and deserve your place there and i sense that um because you know i i i started my career um in in the early 90s um so i, I i'm of a certain era let's say um <laughs> But I really am excited by the sense that we, we are actually now starting to move from that industrial age of thinking mm. and, and really starting to organizations are being stretched to think, how can they become more uh, effective, more flexible, more dynamic, more engaging? How can they attract the best talent? And that's actually really forcing them away from the status quo. I, and, and, and I'm quite excited by the fact that I, I truly believe in the over the next 10 years, there'll, there'll be no option. There'll be no option. Yeah, I, I think this is a this is a, a social growth. I, like I don't I think, you know, maybe 10 years ago, it belonged in diversity and inclusion departments and they were like fighting for something. But actually, I think this is a, like a social evolution. And that's why I was careful around the evolution piece. It's not the same as a biological evolution. I think it's a social evolution. So yeah, there's a call for it. But also there's also something else to realize, which is that in 10 years, the senior leaders who progress there are currently the middle managers or semi-senior leaders. They've had exposure to this in their education, in their socialization, in a way that current senior leaders haven't. So one of the things, and this is for anyone who's a senior leader, who's looking at the talent coming up and is feeling threatened. 
get yourself a coach with a background in this stuff and learn how to harness your unique strengths without needing to dominate to be important and you won't you won't age out you won't become irrelevant because you will be holding your space in the way that you can best hold it as opposed to what you're currently doing which is actually holding a, a dominant position of power so like I know that senior leaders are, are getting worried they're worried that I heard someone say I'm worried some woman's going to get my position I was like what do I say to you but I was like okay but but what might help her get it? And he's like, well, because she's a woman and the diversity quote, I said, no, no, we know women are usually five years advanced on their peers. So what do you need to do to be the best option? Yeah. Instead of relying on your tenure and relying on your buddies. What I, do you I love that, Sheila, because there's a set, like, there's a, it's almost a, cha- own it, like own the thing. There's a challenge yeah. there. And I really like that. And it's, it's like, the thing is, I, I, I think we all deserve to thrive. Like I think every identity, like every lived experience deserves to thrive generally, right? Uh, people who harm people need to do a lot of healing. But outside of that, I think everybody deserves to thrive. But I think one of the issues is that people weren't taught how to thrive as themselves. And so they've had to rely heavily on parts of their identity they have no control over. Like you can't help what race you were born. You can't help what gender you were born. Like you can change your gender if it feels misaligned, but you can't help what sex, sorry, let me correct that. You can't help what sex you're born. And you can alter what gender you interact with the world as now, thankfully, but like you are inherited some things and you can't change that, but you can most definitely come closer to yourself and harness that as your main competition in the world, not your privileged identities. And one thing I do know is that one of the threats that I've heard senior leaders talk to me about is that they might be shown up by somebody that didn't get the position before. So they might bring someone in who knows more than they do. They might find that a person of color or a woman or a person with a disability or a neurodivergent comes onto that board and wipes the floor with their knowledge and skill base. And they're really scared of that. My point is, don't be scared of it. Upgrade. Like that's your next development step. Just because you're the senior leader doesn't mean you don't have growth. You don't need to have shame. But you do need to, to grow just like everyone around you is growing. When you first came into your organization, maybe growth wasn't the norm. Because like I said, 11 years ago, it wasn't the norm that you would grow every year and do CPD, continuous professional development. But it is the norm now. So, so like take it on. You don't need to be scared of it. You can develop yourself so that you are competition instead of what you're doing, which is getting annoyed that somebody who's better developed than you for this role is being given the role and it shows you up. And like, that's not always conscious. Sometimes it's like this niggling feeling, but yeah, like this is an opportunity for everyone, but it might mean that you have to put in as much work as anybody else does, as somebody with a disadvantage does, you know? Yeah. But I don't think that's a dis. I think that is, like, I can tell you if you have kids or you have friends, they will benefit from you doing that work. You know, it's worth it. It's yeah. worth it for everyone. But my God, is it worth it for men who were brought up in, white men who were brought up to believe that they didn't need to do more than the bare minimum or more than just work hard and have lost all parts of their identity and their experience along the way there is growth in understanding inclusion for yourself as well not just for your organization or just for society although they are also really good reasons to do it there's actually personal growth in there for you as well and that can be much more freeing I think than a lot of I know a lot of my clients are often surprised by how helpful this is to them in understanding themselves and finding their own worth and, and knowing their place in conversation so that they can add value without dominating. Um, 
it, it has been something that's been really helpful across the board for them, not just in their place of work, but it has, it has made them better at work too. So they actually look better because they're doing better work. Um, so I, I really think there is a win-win-win here. Mm. Um, society can win, organisations can win, individuals can win, but it does take a development to be able to see it outside of an oppressive um, systemic norm and to actually realise that you could create an inclusive norm. Mm. Fantastic. Thank you, Sheila. I want to just um, touch on, uh, and that's not to discount it in any way, but uh, mm -hmm. this this um, movement from um, operational to strategic within organisations is something mm -hmm. that you do a lot of work around as well. Do you want to mm -hmm. do you want to tell us our listeners a little bit about that as well, please? Yes. Yeah, so, so basically, most people get to middle management or or semi-senior management um, because they are operationally strong so they can get the job done they can do it themselves really well and they can lead you know they can get people to, to work at a certain standard but to move into a leadership position it's less about what you do and more about how you support others in their success but that is the exact opposite to what got you here you usually got here you might have been liked by people but you got here based on individual performance but strategy and being more strategic is actually about the organization's performance and a place that you can take in it, but equally how you position other people to succeed. And I suppose one of the biggest challenges for, for my clients is how do I move from something that is rewarded that got me this position to doing something completely different to succeed in my strategic role? But often they're expected to just make this switch, but the organization doesn't always help them make that switch so a couple of things their managers might still want them to be operational and strategic which isn't always the role but it just makes their manager's life easier and um, sometimes they're not given the support to learn how to move from one to the other so they don't know how to measure their success their strategic successes because they've only learned how to <clears throat> how to measure operational success um, and I suppose it's the biggest issue is everyone's talking about being strategic very few people know how and I think that that understanding strategy is like how the tactics connect to the kind of team aims, but then the team aims connect to the organizational aims and how every decision needs to take into account a kind of more complex view of the situation rather than technical and tactical. But yet you've only been rewarded for being technical and tactical. So how are you going to be able to do that without feeling really, really uncomfortable? Um, and, and I think that that's one of the things that we don't always tell people who are moved into strategic roles is that actually this is going to be really uncomfortable moving from that to this. Mm. Actually, you're going to probably attempt to micromanage or step in or take on work you don't need to take on just to feel useful because you haven't learned to value your strategic skills as value add or useful. You only know to think you're valuable when you're the one fixing or doing. So you keep interfering in the processes, whereas strategically you want to set up processes that don't need you to intervene that the people below you help each other, that that success happens when you're on holidays. But that's really threatening to your ego. If you're like, especially like and you mentioned working class. So a working class value is work hard, right? It's one of those values that comes with it, right? So what happens when you don't need to stay late? What happens when you don't need to come off your holiday and check your emails? You're going to feel threatened. You're going to feel replaceable. But actually, if you're in a strategic role, that means you've done your job really well. You're doing your job really well. 
but that is going to challenge identity and values. So, so there's actually quite a bit of work to be done from moving from operational to strategic and also to be able to explain to other people the value add you have without saying you did things you didn't do, right? So that's the other thing. Yeah. It's like, how do I express my, my value add without bragging about myself or saying that my team's work is my work? Because there's not like no team hates that more. And I get, like it gets very annoying to hear managers claiming the work of their team when actually they should be claiming that they led their team, that they supported their team, not that they did it. You know, so it does like moving from operational to strategic is really hard, but it does require development. You, and like I often think about, you know, you could be really good at something like I might be in a cinema. I might be really good at like scooping ice cream. And then you say, right now, Sheila, you're supervising everyone scooping ice cream. But I've never learned how to teach people to scoop ice cream. I've never even learned how to like give feedback about ice cream scooping. I've never learned how to critique ice cream scooping. I just know how I do it. And now I'm going around telling everyone to do it my way which might not be the most optimal way because maybe my hand twists in a certain way, but it's the only way I know how. And that's what I see happen in organizations. We promote someone, they only have their skill set, and they keep attempting to make everyone do it their way because they don't know how else to do it. Mm. So they can't move into a strategic mindset because they're so busy in the detail of doing in the way that they like to do it, that they're not actually being strategic, but they're not being helped to learn how to be strategic either. People just think, oh, well, you were good at that. So now you'll be good at this. I can tell you, like, this supervising scooping ice cream is not the same as scooping ice cream. Just like teaching is not the same as doing. You know, strategically leading isn't the same as operationally managing. So to give that promotion without the supports is actually setting everyone up to fail. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, I, and, I, and I think it's harmful to people. Co- coaching is not the same as mentoring. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. 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 It was a challenge for me when I first moved from a kind of an operational position into uh, a more strategic position, which was becoming a project manager. I thought that, um, okay, so to be to show that I'm, I'm doing well here, I need to be the center of everything. Everything needs to go through me and my desk needs to be a pile of paper at all times. Otherwise, people are going to think I'm not doing anything. I need to be in the office before everybody else and I need to leave after everybody else didn't really work none of didn't which, make me a better project manager well I was gonna say none of which add value so so actually one of the first things I do when someone's moving from operational to strategic is we we kind of develop some some very clear like KPIs for want of a better frame like how are we going to measure your success in the strategic role because otherwise we make up crap that doesn't add value you know so like one of the things one of my big questions is how does that intervention add value and and people are like oh well if I oversee it I'll be like How does it take value? So when you ask those two questions, you start to find out very quickly if your decision making is more about your comfort than about the the results or whether actually you're intervening appropriately. Um, So like one of the things I I was working with a manager recently and he said, look, I'm paid for 38 hour a week. I probably only need to be working 25. And I'm like, they should be paying you more then. He was like, what do you mean? I was like, well, you've brought down a 40 hour role to a 25 active hour role. And your projects, your work is on time. It's, it's above standard. It's innovative. He's like, yeah, I was like, that's a pay rise opportunity. Mm. He's like, no, but I need to fill the other hours. I'm like, okay, fill the other hours if you want, but that's actually a reason to withdraw money from your salary. You've just set up a system that works so well that you don't need to do 38 touch hours a week. And like, remember that that those kind of like 25 hours or whatever they are touch hours that means that you are thinking the other hours 
which is what you need from a strategic person. You need someone who's thinking about problems, preempting, being innovative, considering solutions, trying to make people's lives easier. So if you're t- if if you're 38, 40 hours a week or touch hours, you're not being strategic. It's not possible because strategy involves thinking, complex mm. thinking, which involves not touching people, like not having touch hours. Mm. So a strategic role and operational role have different values, but a strategic role needs a promotion, needs a pay rise when you're able to create space for the strategic thinking and your system is working well and outperforming other systems. Like the people are outperforming other people. That's a pay rise. That's not trying to fill those hours because you're ignoring unconsciously that those hours of not being in contact with people might actually be where you're problem solving best, not under pressure, where you're able to see meta views because you're not in the detail with people. Um, and so, yeah, so that's a pay rise opportunity when it comes to a strategic role, which is why, like, and we, we all know this, there are people who are in strategic roles who do F all and drive people mad, right? And they're terrible leaders. Yes, that happens. But there are people who are in strategic roles who you see can have a coffee with people and people are like, it's grand for some. They're working. Mm. That coffee is work. You know, they're going out for that, those drinks. They're going out for lunch. That's work. You might not, it's not work in an operational sense, but it is in a strategic sense. So you have to have different measures for success. Now, if I'm working with an operational manager, this is not what we're talking about. You know what I mean? So like, this isn't true for operational, but we have to see that there are different KPIs for both. And you have to help someone understand them to be, for them to be able to adequately measure their success. Hmm. I wonder, and perhaps this is leading the witness, my Lord. Um, (laughs) so for for people to be clear about where they sit within the organization and and what the the strategy cascade is and and to know what they need to be doing i sense with a lot of organizations that there's actually um and i've struggled with this as an operational manager so Mm. an exact an organization will issue a set of objectives or goals for the year and as part of the appraisal system, you're expected then to cascade them down through the levels of the organization and make them relevant as goal setting opportunities for people at every level. But it's kind of like you get a list and it's developed by the board or, or, or people at board level. And, and there's no real communication as to what this means at every level. So, uh, so an organizational strategy should explain how people meet the objectives and goals of the organization at every level in the day-to-day of what they do so is there some work to do there around communication as well to make sure that when when somebody is moving into a strategic position they see the objectives at that level and how that fits into the greater organizational objectives Yes. So I, from an organizational development perspective, I like to use a dialogic approach, which is a conversational approach. So I think it's more than, than communication. Mm. I think set your organization. So I think there's nothing wrong with senior managers setting the direction of the organization. I think that's appropriate. But I think that what needs to happen next is a conversation at each level about how that level can contribute to that goal, not communication. There's a difference between telling someone how they can and asking them to input versus having a conversation. Mm. So for me, if you're going to go to the effort of strategic goals, you need to have a method in which you are able to have conversations with people responsible for the delivery of it 
so that they can inform the most strategic way from their perspective, even an operational role. So here's an example. You might say my team can make, I actually know of a company that did this two years ago. You say my team can make 10 million in sales this year. You decided as a manager, because you know you get a 2% bonus for every sale, right? So you're like, we'll do 10 million because you've worked out what your bonus is. But because nobody's talked to your team, what they don't know is that you are overworking your team and they're about to all turn over in the next year. They're about to leave, right? So you've set a goal that is financially beneficial for you, but because nobody's talked to your team, your team are saying that is not an achievable goal for us. What is achievable is this. Now, don't get me wrong. There's always stretches. Like people are always going to do what's comfortable. So I'm not saying you go, oh, that's exactly what we do. But because we haven't talked to your team, we're not getting a real understanding. And like there's some really big organizations at the moment. There's one in particular that I have in mind that has taken away time cards because they said, look, we trust you to do the work. It has set every middle manager up to exploit their team. And they Mm. haven't even copped it yet. And their teams are leaving them. They're all out there looking for new jobs because the organization was like, this is a really good method of trusting our staff, which technically it is. But what they've actually done is set up a position where middle managers can now look like that they're providing the results that they promised that are unreasonable, but they're exploiting their staff and they're now losing their staff. So there's a real issue here with not talking to the levels responsible for delivery. Now, there are some really big organizations like international ones that that's not as practical. You can't do you can't talk to everyone. But what you can do is you can pick like I I call it like a stream and you you get the stream to some degree to do that. And then next year you get a different stream. But really, you shouldn't be doing a strategy for one year. You should be doing it for about five. Right. Because strategies are long term things. Mm. So I, I think some critical thinking up front and then dialogic approaches, conversations um, you can either set up formal conversations where you go down a line of the business or you can set up informal where you where you give people grades and you say you can come and talk to us at this grade. So you might have to say, right, A's are entry level people, B's are this, C's are our middle managers. You know, you might have to do it that way and then do an open call for people to come to the conversation. But I do think that you need conversations. And I think that's the biggest gap between um, people in positions of power making decisions that are good for them which ultimately undermine the organization's sustainable success. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and that whole engagement piece to, to encourage buy-in because if people are part of the conversation and part of the decision-making, it's much easier for them to visualize how they can buy into that, I guess, mm. as well. And also they'll tell you about the problems you don't know about. So like if you have an OD team, brilliant. If you don't, if you have a HR team and OD section, this will be normal for OD practitioners to do. I mean, organizational development practitioners. So basically I'm only saying it in case anyone is like, she's throwing letters around. I hate when people do that. Um, But basically you are going to see problems you know nothing about that will become really big problems in the next year, two years, three years. You will see them by having these conversations and you can do something with them. Mm. whereas what a lot of people are doing is like top down uh giving people frameworks that don't work and then then putting individuals on pips being like your performance isn't good enough and the individual is trying to tell you i'm working 70 hour weeks i keep making mistakes because i can't keep up with what's being asked of me not because i'm insufficient but because actually our department is stretched because our manager is driving me nuts because like there could be loads of reasons somebody i care about passed away Mm. so i think what we need to do is realize that there is value from the ground up, not just top down. 
Um, a bit like Ford, you know, Ford developed the five whys. Mm. You know, you don't just sit in the boardroom and ask why is that happening and listen to the manager's response. You go down to the floor and you say, why? Oh, well, because the wheel did this. Why did it do that? Well, it did that because we 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 make them this way. Why do we make them this way? Well, because that person decided that this is the best size. Why did that person decide that? Well, at the time, cars were bigger. So is the problem that we're still making steering wheels for, for cars that were bigger once than they are now? Yes. Okay, so that's the real problem that we need to solve. We don't need to say, we don't need to get the workers to work harder. Do, do, do you know what I mean? So, so I think that like we could use more of that ground up understanding because there is intelligence on your entry level staff right up to the, the senior board that, that could earn you money mm. and prevent problems. That's what strategy is about, is understanding how to use all of that, how to distill that into useful information, whereas operational is how to get them to do it, whatever it is that you've decided. So it's a very big shift in, in understanding. Mm. And you're currently studying, uh, uh, or studying is probably not the right term, you're reading for a PhD at the moment. So I'm, I'm doing a PhD in inclusive leadership and I'm looking at it in commercial enterprises. So a lot of inclusive leadership has been developed in like public sector, like education and health, whereas I can see that it has real value in the commercial side. But that's where that's where I'm kind of researching it at the moment. Um, and, and this is for anyone who's going, will I do a PhD or won't I do a PhD? I think this is really important is I thought PhDs were about intelligence, right? It has nothing to do with intelligence. It's about and I, I'm sorry if anybody has a PhD and feels it does. I apologize. In my experience, it is about how much feedback you can take and adapt your approach without exploding or losing your motivation. Right. So it's like, how often can you can you find a mistake and correct it? How often can you be told you need to improve that? It, it is the ultimate um, experience of receiving feedback and adapting um, and. Yeah, and as somebody who wasn't great in school, um, I kind of expected it to be like this, but I know that like I have peers who are shocked because they were great in school and they're shocked at how much like, I'm calling it feedback, but like negative comments they get. Like I have great supervisors, so I get great feedback, but like it, it can be a little bit soul destroying when you've, when you've spent like a year writing, like for instance, a year writing a literature review to find out that you skipped the main part of it mm. and you never understood you did. So for me, I think if you think about PhD, it's about your willingness to correct yourself repeatedly. And it's about learning to be a, like a research person, a research a scientist, rather than learning about the topic. So yes, I have to learn about the topic in the process, but the PhD is really going to measure me on my uh, quality of research, mm. which I didn't really think about. I thought I'd just learn all the lovely stuff about inclusive leadership, which I'm doing but actually, the really hard part for me is learning how to be a researcher and um, yeah. PhD standard. Um, and, yeah. and constantly challenging all of the assumptions that, and the biases that you we naturally oh. hold within ourselves. Oh, right. Like the amount of time somebody says, and what's that based on? And I'm like, well, because I think it obviously that's true. And they're like, not in research. It's not. Tell us where that assumption is coming from. Like every second line is an assumption. I'm like, OK, I've got to go back. So, yeah, it's. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. Now, I love what I'm doing because I love learning. Um, but did I sign up thinking I was going to learn? To, you know, if I knew it was it was mostly about critique and your quality of research, I don't know if I would have ran at it like this. I ran at it because of the topic of inclusive leadership and the, the fact that I see it work and it's really helpful. Mm. Um, and I've been doing it for a long time. I've been using it in my work, but I've only just started to call it what it is now, using the name on it. Um, 
but yeah so yeah it's it's a interesting journey as they say yeah yeah <laughs> and well and and absolutely good luck with that um yeah it sounded a bit like preparing for a cta exam as well a lot of feedback um where can people access you sheila people who want to hear more about what you have to say who've been inspired by what you've said today people who want to track your progress you know see what ideas you're coming out with where 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 do we access you brilliant so you can go to my website um which is sheilawalsh.com and it's spelled s-i-l-e um on that website there is a leadership letters and i send out kind of weekly a letter which has some kind of resource um or supports for leaders to develop just bite-sized ones and they're free so you can each week you can take a little piece of development on Mm -hmm. um so that at the end of a year you've actually done a, a good bit of growth without taking a lot of time out of your day and um, there is links to podcasts so this podcast will be on my podcast page and um, there's youtube there as well um and there's also a leadership assessment if you're trying to figure out what you need to do to progress your leadership you can go on and do this assessment and it it kind of breaks it down into one of the four critical elements which is either strategy leadership skills self or relationships um and so you you can stay in touch with me any of those ways and on linkedin i'm i'm always posting on linkedin so and we'll, we'll put links to all of your Brilliant. resources on the in the show notes as well. Thanks a million, Ray. And so it just remains for me to say, Sheila Walsh, thank you so much for for coming to talk to us today. And hopefully, you know, we'll 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 keep in touch, and you'll come back and talk to us again in the future. Can you handle the load that you were meant to carry? Cause we're on a mission, listen, it's beyond description. We don't want to fit in if we're living in a contradiction.